What is up, guys? This is Rain Charger for Living Indigenous Media. Uh, I have another episode for you here again today. This episode is with Dr. Joshua Miner of the KU Film and Media Studies Department. And uh, we had a little sit-down talking about video games and their kind of space that they occupy in the indigenous life. Uh, we talked a little bit about video game creators and... You know, a big theme of this podcast and this project in general is talking about potentiality and uh, directions that these these medias will take. And I, I think it's an important uh, bridge to cross when we're talking about newish kinds of platforms. You know, the video game perspective is not a, a really old one. So, you know, the indigenous uh, component of that has a lot of potential, I think. Um, and really, Dr. Miner, he's, he's got a, in my opinion, he's got a really nice pulse on where that's going. I think he's going to be keeping uh, a watchful eye on the indigenous video game industry as that's burgeoning. Um, so please, please enjoy this episode of Living Indigenous Media. Um, Again, you can hit me at my contact. Uh, you can get me through my KU email address at raincharger at ku.edu. Uh, whatever platform you're listening to this on, there ought to be a link to it. If not, you can check it out at anchor.com, which is where I am holding this podcast. Uh, again, thank you so much for listening. Okay, uh, I'm here with... Uh... Dr. Joshua Miner, and this is Living Indigenous Media, uh, the podcast talking about indigenous media movements uh, from a scholarly and kind of casual level. Uh, Dr. Miner, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, now, you're here at KU in the Film and Media Studies Department. I, I guess I want to start with kind of like your history in the Film and Media Studies uh, area. So before we get into kind of the discussion of video gaming. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I'm actually fairly um, fairly new to film and media studies uh, as far as, you know, the kinds of work that I teach here. Mm -hmm. um, you know, through over the past decade or so, I've been teaching mostly indigenous film and um, video game studies, and that sort of coalesced as I, as I came on in, uh, I guess, 2015 here at KU. Okay, I didn't know that you had this, such a background in uh, indigenous film, actually. Yeah. Kind of, like we were talking about, I <laughs> had a really good discussion with... Uh, Dr. Anderson about that. Maybe uh, later on in the summer we can have a, a little more in-depth conversation on the film side of things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess let's start with kind of video games as a medium. I've been a pretty avid gamer most of my life, uh, at least on some capacity, a lot less now that I'm in college. Um, I think we've seen kind of this big cultural shift in the way people view and look at video games rather mm -hmm. than just as a source of entertainment. I think we're seeing these realms of kind of like art and social critique. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, it was kind of a roundabout way that, that we, um, I think, broadly in the United States arrived at that, right. um, at that view of games. I think in part really because of the scare in the 90s about the relationship between violence um, specifically violence in, in young um, men who were gamers mm -hmm. and uh, just the violent rhetoric that gets circulated through um, game communities uh, and and video game form and I think as as time's gone on that link while the while the scare of course was overhyped uh, and has been more complicated I think there is some value into understanding the way that games shape 
our understanding of how we should interact with each other, mm-hmm. our understanding of how we interact with our environments, uh, and and especially experimental game designers and indigenous game designers, right, have really run with that, I right. think, over the past, you know, five years especially, so. Yeah, I think, you know, more and more we're seeing these uh, these narratives that aren't just, like, your run-and-gun or your action-adventure. They're kind of deeper or, or more vague sometimes. Uh-huh. Um, uh, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but uh, the whole Never Alone game mm-hmm. uh, from out of uh, those Upper last, One games. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just an insane visual style, and it's a very different narrative than than most video games even today. Um, I guess let's go back a little bit. Uh, so you teach a Native American video gaming class here on campus. I, I teach so I teach I teach a broad Indigenous film and media class okay. in which we we um, engage with indigenous um, game design, but in my video game uh, production class, which I'm right. teaching this semester, we, uh, sort of throughout the semester, we will um, look at, at experimental games from lots of different areas, including uh, indigenous game designers. So. Okay. With that, I, do you have like a small uh, history or contextualization of kind of like where natives have sat in the video game production realms? You know, rather than looking at it historically, I think it's, you know, one thing that's helped me is to understand the interventions that indigenous game designers have made mm-hmm. through different routes. So on the one hand, a game like Never Alone emerges um, from, you know, frankly, a, a slightly larger pot of funding that comes through a partnership, right, with a particular kind of nonprofit organization. Um, and then, you know, sort of on the on the other side of things, we have experimental game designers working really on their own or you know, super women like uh, Elizabeth LaFonse, who right. who sort of has her fingers in in a lot of different partnerships, but you'll you'll find that a lot of um, a lot of indigenous games that get released end up being released as companion media to television shows, whether mm-hmm. on the Aboriginal um, People's Television Network in Canada um, or with museums. I know uh, Elizabeth did a um, let's see a mini game with I think the Duluth Children's Museum. Um, last year, so there are a lot of these sort of partnerships with different cultural organizations and nonprofits that I think enable um, some inroads for that because it's just it's it's virtually impossible given the the sort of constraints of a broad audience of a large um, game development company to to put the kind of funding into a major indigenous game project. Right, and I know that you know in the modern day uh, video game conversation, large AAA titles are kind of like how do I say this? Uh, people are kind of shying away from them on some levels. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are turning towards indie games and going to that back page of Steam. Uh, Absolutely. You know, do you think that is a realm that natives are going to start exploiting more rather than just being tied to major corporate companies? I mean, I think you 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 hit uh, hit it on the spot, right? A lot of it has to do with distribution and, um, and ways in which uh, indie... Uh, designers can get their games out, right? So Steam has been a great resource. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, it depends. I mean, and it also depends on what, what the games are designed for. I think Never Alone was unique. I mean, it has some unique formal features, which are pretty cool. Right. But it also, in many ways, is a very beautifully well-designed but very conventional 2D platformer, mm-hmm. right? I think in a lot of ways, uh, it's it's indigeneity, for lack of a more precise way to put it, is uh, is sort of at the, at the surface level, a lot right. of it, right? Um, the the sort of cultural insights notwithstanding so and and I think that that was a major move forward mm-hmm. right um, 
but a lot of other games that are are working in in way in maybe areas of video game development that don't get a lot of critical attention like educational games right have been huge uh and a lot of the the goals of indigenous filmmakers have ported over to indigenous gaming right language revitalization right. cultural expression and stewardship i mean these are all big areas for indigenous game designers so. right okay so i guess you know hypothetically do you think that do you see that natives will kind of reach that big intersection of where the representation is not the only thing as we're kind of not the it's not the only thing in never alone but it's kind of the primary focus do you think we'll start to see uh indigenous gameplay meeting indigenous representation kind of uh as the video game itself yeah do you, do you see those realms happening? yeah i mean i get that's a great way to put it right yeah that that the um i mean and that's always a first step is visibility and representation i think those are right. important first steps of course um and those are the steps really that are going to be available to broad audiences um yeah, more accessible so mm -hmm. but uh you know a lot of a lot of what i teach is really looking under the hood at indigenous games and looking for the ways in which they operate on different uh, mechanical structures or different different logics of interaction and really pushing toward the a kind of horizon of indigenous computation mm -hmm. right what does that look like what does it mean um and there are a lot of really really wonderful game and media designers working in game-based media. Um, up at Concordia, for example, is just one of the ones that I really always come back to um, with the uh, Initiative for Indigenous Futures because they're doing such amazing work up there, right? And mm -hmm. really kind of trying to rethink computation from an indigenous perspective. Okay. Now, with that, I, I think a lot of people maybe don't realize what goes into making a video game. Uh, if we're thinking at it from a tribal perspective, do you think tribes could uh, gain an infrastructure or set up an infrastructure for creation of video games so that maybe they could have um, some kind of like self-determination through gaming? Do you think that that's a, a, another realm that, that, that maybe we'll see here in the, in the, in the near future? Yeah, I mean, I, I, and a lot of the games that have come out have come through, um, oh, Purity and Decay started development through... Um, Let's see, Dame's making games, game jams. So there are, right. there are a lot of kind of other, I, all that to say, I think a lot of partnerships that indigenous communities are making with um, game development among other marginalized communities has right. been really powerful. Um, but the tools are out there and available, right? I mean, um, whether you're making text-based games through Twine or you're, you're, you're learning Unity or, or upping your game with something like Unreal, I mean, there are there are certainly tools out there mm -hmm. um, for indigenous development groups to get together and start putting putting games together, so absolutely. I mean, I'd sure love to see it, you know, video game prepared by the Seminole Nation or of something. Of course, you know? yeah. That and I mean, they're already out there. Uh, games sponsored by and mostly put together by individual tribes. It's just the funding for distribution thus far uh, has required these sort of out, outside partnerships. I mean, if we're, you know, like we're getting its talks of Unreal, it would be great to see a, a native version of Quake or something oh, absolutely. like that. I mean, oh, yeah. my God. Um, so we talked a little bit about representation, but I don't think you can ever kind of, um, at least where we're at right now, you can't escape the discussion of representation when you talk about these media mm. areas. Uh, I know that we've, we've had problematics in video games about yeah. native representation. Uh, Thinking back at it, uh, TF2 has a cosmetic item that's a headdress. Mm -hmm. um, 
Mortal Kombat has Nightwolf, who always kind of, I remember being a little kid playing Mortal Kombat, and Nightwolf is this Apache guy who uses energetic tomahawks and bows and arrows, but speaks Lakota. Like, uh-huh. you know, what do you think of, of representation of, of natives in video games lately, like from the bigger companies? From the bigger companies? I mean, I, you know, a lot of the touchstones that, that, that people latch onto from the, again, these sort of AAA titles, um, I think, you know, representation has gotten better. I think the limitations are the limitations of, again, the conventions of the form, mm-hmm. right? Which uh, the conventions of video games demand that um, your protagonist attacks and kills enemies, right? That's just, right. that's the standard for 75% of all video games. And for that reason, um, that's already setting you up to port in certain kinds of histories that we already know, whether that's from literature or film or just broader cultural narratives. And of course, uh, when you do that, you end up with, uh, of course, who's your antagonist, right? right. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that there have been though some really interesting ways around that problem. Um, Assassin's Creed did that pretty well, right? Right. Um, but again, that's not, that's still a colonial perspective, a sympathetic colonial perspective um, maybe a more fully dimensional perspective, but still um, not an indigenous perspective on what it means to have an indigenous protagonist. Right. Right. And what indigenous concerns are in that context, that historical context, for example. Um, and again, right, I mean, if you, you can't just change the color of the protagonist and expect that that, that offers an indigenous perspective, right? Because right. The, the systems of interaction are the same. I, you know, you still see those parallels in, 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 in film with with video games, uh, you know, the whole discussion of uh, Johnny Depp as the Lone Ranger, or as, uh, as Tonto, right. you know, you kind of see that similar just repackaging Absolutely, of a different right. hero. Um, I mean, I, and, and the structure of how you build video games encourages that, right? I mean, right. you just plaster a new texture Plug onto play. a model, right? Yeah, exactly. So. Um, I know that there was a, a, a bit of a, not maybe you can call it a debacle with the new Civ game or the new Civ expansion, and I think they had the Cree... Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, you know, is is that you know, incorporation or is that just kind of assimilation still? <laughs> what was it in Civ Civ Six that had the um, the sort of colonial technology in the tree? What do you remember this? Um, oh shoot, I, I'm not a big Civ player, so I, I you know I just was very aware of the. Uh, uh-huh. I, I read a lot of the the discussion about it, but I I didn't get too deep into the nuts and bolts of the game itself. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the history of civilization. You find again that their their first inroads is is in representation, right? right. Um, they they give you a, I mean, I think what was it? Was it Sitting Bull that became the first? Right. Might might have been the first uh, sort of native leader. But of course, again, the game is still a colonial game. It's based on colonialism. You've basically put Sitting Bull's face, you know, in a cartoon context, but Sitting Bull's face onto an otherwise uh, colonial empire. And in that case, um, and I think I mentioned this um, when we spoke a couple weeks ago, uh, the barbarians in civilization, right? right? Those are the true indigenous people of civilization, um, no matter who you, whose face you put on a colonial empire. So. Right. Uh, you know, another game we've been looking at in, in, in Dr. Warrior's class uh, that I think is, is really interesting and brings it a whole different intersection of is this uh, Thunderbird Strike, uh, mm-hmm. an, you know, an app-based game. Uh, you know, very accessible. It's free. Uh, it's, it's 
mostly nonviolent. Uh-huh. You know, you're mostly destroying trucks or something. Uh, are you? Do you think video games are are showing a, a more big presence in a post Dapple, post Standing Rock world for natives? Uh, yeah, I mean, Elizabeth Lafonse has been great too about about using um, limited resources to make accessible mobile games that push the boundaries on what kinds of interaction might be available in a video game. And I think Thunderbird Strike, again, I mean, under the hood, it's a relatively conventional side-scrolling platformer, but uh, at the level of semantics, right, on the surface, um, those images and what you're really interacting with, not to mention her specific aesthetics, visual style, right, Right. really shapes the way that those mechanics um, are acted out as you play the game. Uh, and I mean that that game, of course, has extra layers of controversy given both its funding source and the sort of energy lobbyists that attacked it right when it right. was released. Um, so that's a, kind of an interesting case. But she's done some other kind of smaller, or I guess I shouldn't say smaller, but more under the radar mobile games. Um, I was so in is one that came out. I'm trying to remember what year, maybe 2015. Um, okay. And this is kind of a um, a mobile. Um, you might call it like an environmental stewardship game, right? right? Designed to teach certain kinds of ways of interacting with the environment, which mirrors Thunderbird Strike, but maybe is less politically inflected by uh, by Standing Rock and, and um, the pipeline. So, I guess let's get into art style a bit. You know, yeah. uh, some that stand out to me is like Okami. You know, mm. that traditional kind of Japanese art style, uh, kind of getting away from. The modern day, hyper realistic, you know, again coming out of the Unreal Engine and mm-hmm. and, and different uh, platforms like that. Are we going to see native art styles like in, in a similar aesthetic to a Thunderbird Strike? Do you think that that has a a popular, you know, will, will people latch on to that? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, it, and again, much in fact, much like the just the visual art world for um, for native painters, especially right. right working in the early twentieth century, when I think about that history and how it mirrors today's history, there are, there are both an accepted sort of mainstream set of artistic conventions, mm-hmm. in this case video game conventions, right. right. And then there are assumptions, and oftentimes a really strict box that gets drawn around about about what uh, what constitutes a native or indigenous visual aesthetic in a video game. Right. Uh, I think Elizabeth has done a great job, you know, pushing at the boundaries of what is understood in a mainstream sense to be an indigenous visual art style. And that's one thing I really like about Thunderbird Strike. And then, uh, you know, a lot of the other games that she's done are working against or with other kinds of video game conventions, whether that's, you know, kind of an 8 or 16-bit pixelated uh, style, sort of referential or vintage style, or um, the educational games that she's done, which given the fact that they're working in an educational space, are borrowing from a different set of, of visual aesthetics that are you know, keyed toward children or you know, whatever audience. So, hmm. as, as video games are, are, are kind of expounding out further and, and, and becoming, I guess, more mainstream, you know, mm-hmm. kind of everybody you talk to has Farmville or Candy Crush or some app or something, you know, and right. it's, 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 it's outside of, uh, outside of these realms of age, mm. uh, you know, are natives going to be a part of that? You know, do you think that we can bring, um, you know, I, I know you're not, you, you aren't uh, enrolled or anything, but 
you're familiar with native communities. Do you see mm. expanding video games as a narrative to older native people or people who didn't grow up with video games? Do you think that, that they become more accessible? Do you think that they become uh, more something that people can can get in line with or, 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 or have a dialogue with? I mean, I, I think that's why mobile games are so important. Mm-hmm. Um, web games to a lesser degree, but especially mobile games, uh, in part because they are uh, immediately accessible um, to, um, especially the, you know, when we think about, I don't know, this very long-standing conversation about the, quote, digital divide and what that means. Right. Um, of course, mobile games are going to be the most accessible in that context, especially. Mm-hmm. And uh, given that, you know, mobile games are specifically designed to um, teach you the gameplay quickly and easily as you play the game. So whereas you, it's very hard to pick up Halo, for example, right. which you might think as, a, as an FPS game it would just be easy to pick up. But uh, uh, today's FPS games, especially those on console, podcast you just heard was recorded with anchor if you want to make your own download the android or ios app completely free from anchor.fm slash podcast that's anchor.fm slash podcast